All right, everybody, let's go ahead and find our places. Go ahead and have a seat. And as you're making your way back to your seats, um, let me just throw out one other announcement. I, it was in the bulletin. If you happen to glance at it, you'll have seen that on March 8th, we'll begin our REACH Missions Conference again. And it's always a highlight of the year. I'm excited about it. And every week, we've been kind of hinting and talking about it a little bit. And I want to keep reminding you, so just as on your calendar, it'll be March 8th, Sunday, the 9th, and the 10th also. And uh, it's, it's really a great time. If you've never experienced one of our missions conferences, uh, you're in the area, please make the time to come. It, I think you won't be sorry. It's well worth it. And certainly if you're members of First Baptist Church, regular attenders of First Baptist Church, you really want to be a part of this. Um, I do want to let you know that we have invited in as our guest speaker this year, um, my brother-in-law, my wife's brother, Arion Vogley. And uh, Arion has been here before. He is an unbelievably gifted preacher and teacher of God's Word. And just a, just a tremendous blessing. And I know that you're going to be encouraged by him. While he's here, he's also going to represent for us the ministry of the third church that was started in Albania uh, in the, the little suburb of the capital, which is called Bathore. And uh, Arion is an active part of that church as well, and he's going to help us understand the work of Pastor Fatmir Matsai, who is the leader of that ministry, and Arion helps him with that. And so Arion will be here for that. Those of you that have been a part of our church, you understand also that the missions conference is the time that we ask all of you to pray for your potential involvement in financial giving towards missions. And around here, we call that Faith Promise missions giving and probably next week or for sure the week after we'll be having something in your bulletin a little card something you can pray over but you can begin praying even now and just considering what you and your family might want to do to invest in eternity uh, we want you to faithfully follow the pattern of the new testament give your tithes and offerings first unto the church and then above and beyond that level if you feel like you'd like to give specifically to missions well, that's what this is all about. So begin praying about your opportunity to give and to partner directly through your gifts with the missionaries that we support all around the world. And we're going to have a great week when that time comes. Okay, well, we're almost to the end of our study in the book of Numbers. And actually, we're going to begin today in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you want to open your Bibles there, we can begin there and read together. But in our study in the book of Numbers, if you've been with us, you know that Numbers basically gives us the wilderness wanderings of the nation of Israel. And the real practical lessons that we can take from the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel is that we can learn how to trust the Lord while we're going through trials. And that's very practical because we're always going through trials. And we need to learn how to trust the Lord. And so as we're nearing the end, actually next week will be the very last message in this series, uh, I went back through the messages that we have already studied over the last several months, and, and we began our series by reminding everybody why this is actually practical for us today, and that comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to go ahead and read the first 11 verses as a reminder of why the things that we read in Numbers are so important to us today. 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea 
and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. And we looked at that passage in detail back then, but the idea that I want you to understand here is just simply that the stories that are described in the time of the children of Israel going through the wilderness and the different things they went through, they made a lot of mistakes. And God says, it's written for your learning. It's written for your admonition so that you, we, don't repeat the same mistakes that they, that they had. And so, it wouldn't surprise us that the next verse, for example, in 1 Corinthians 10 says, uh, verse number 12, Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. So if you think you're doing okay, well, today's a good day for us to use as a measuring stick. Um, when we look at the nation of Israel as they go through their life in the Old Testament, we have seen that it really is what we would call the pilgrim's progress. Uh, the story of Israel, as Israel represents the life of any individual believer in Jesus Christ. So Israel, back in Exodus 12, was saved by the blood of the Passover lamb. Amen? And then in Exodus 14, they were baptized in the Red Sea. That's the terminology we see here in 1 Corinthians 10. And the New Testament understanding of that baptism is actually our spiritual entrance into a body of believers. We're not talking about a water baptism. We're talking about a spiritual baptism into the one body of Jesus Christ, as we see in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. And water baptism that we perform in church is just a picture, a physical picture of this spiritual reality. And so water baptism then is our entrance into the local body of believers, a local church. It says they ate the same spiritual meat. Of course, back then it was manna, the bread that came down from heaven in Exodus 16. And so we in our lives, we don't need to have chicken soup for the soul, right? Because we've got God's bread for the soul. In fact, God's bread, God's very word, his food for your soul actually is the very soul of God. This book represents God's will. It represents God's emotions. It, it gives us his very mind. And so God's very soul feeds our soul, and they all had the same spiritual meat. And, well, that's what the Bible is for us. It says they had the same spiritual drink. Well, back in the Old Testament, that was Exodus 17, and Moses smites the rock, and the water comes flowing out where they didn't have water at that time. And of course, that pictures for us the Holy Spirit is that living water that flows out from the rock, which is Christ, right? John 7 gives us that in verses 38 and 39. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. What are you talking about? But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus 
was not yet glorified. So out of Jesus Christ, if you will, then flows unto us the blessing of the Holy Spirit to indwell us as believers. Now these are all things that happen to them literally and physically, but these are all things that picture for us what happens to us when we get saved. These are things that God does for all of us when we get saved. And so now, equipped with all the tools that we could ever need, and by the way, those tools are the body of Christ, the soul of Christ, and the very spirit of Christ, having all the tools that we could ever need, it's time to go and put them into practice. It's time to go and put them into practice. And that's what the wilderness is. Go and put them into practice, right? This is the wilderness time of your life. Have you known Christ as your Savior? Then he has placed you in his body. He has given you everything you need so that you can successfully follow him. What he wants to know is, will you? Will you utilize these tools and gifts and blessings that he's given you to go and trust him through the trials that are going to occur in your wilderness? So today is the day of assessment. How are you doing in your walk with God? The good news is there's not a survey. You don't have to fill it out. You don't have to hand it in. But between you and the Lord, we're going to go over some things. And you can prayerfully consider, Lord, where am I in my walk with you today? When you look at those people that were in the wilderness, they break into two groups, don't they? There's those that wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and died there and never made it into the promised land. And there were others who made it across Jordan and into the promised land. So I think the question that each and every one of us should ask ourselves today is, which group do I want to be in? See, your journey's not over yet. It's not too late for any of us. And the material we're going to cover should help you determine exactly where you really are at. So let's go to the Lord and let's just ask him to do that for us, and then we'll get into our outline. So Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would give us the spiritual eyes to see the big picture today. And that you would give us the ability to see our lives as it fits into that big picture. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would put your finger on the specific areas of our lives that you have identified that we need to work on. And that by understanding that you are putting your finger on that spot in my life, that, well then, I'll pay attention to that. I will go to your word for answers. I will surrender to trust you through that. And as a result, continue to progress in my walk with you unto the promised land. So Lord Jesus, teach us these things. We'll thank you in advance. In Christ's name, amen. So according to 1 Corinthians 10, the example of Israel that we are to learn from is actually an example of failure. They, God was not pleased with many of them, right? That's what it says. So the first thing we're going to look at, point number one in your notes, is recording failure. Recording failure. And, and what we're going to see is, it's interesting, is actually from Hebrews chapter 11. So a lot of you know that Hebrews chapter 11 records for us the lives of so many Old Testament characters that live their life with great faith. And so sometimes it's referred to as the Hall of Fame of Faith from 
the Old Testament characters and, and the things that they did and the way God recognizes that they did what they did by faith. And if you read through the entirety of Hebrews chapter 11, what you're going to find is that in Hebrews 11, there is no mention of any one event from the wilderness. Not one. And you say, wait a minute, I think Moses is in there. Yeah, Moses is in there. But where Moses is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, he's mentioned only in conjunction with the events of his life leading up to the crossing of the Red Sea. And that's it. Not after that. Not after that. So, for example, you can follow along in Hebrews eleven twenty four. It says, by faith, Moses... When he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. So Moses, at this time, while he was still in Egypt, he refused prosperity. He refused comfort and ease and privilege with Pharaoh, but rather by faith, he chose to walk with God, and he chose to walk with God's people, which he knew would include suffering. Why is that? Well, it's because by faith, he understood that the eternal riches that God had for him were far greater than the temporal riches he could enjoy in Egypt. He saw that eternal is greater than temporal, that spiritual is greater than physical. It goes on in verse 27, By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now normally, standing against Pharaoh in that dictatorship that he ran over the major portion of the planet, well, that would have had severe consequences even unto death. But by faith, Moses stood publicly against it. And that's the story of all the plagues that God poured out on Egypt. Verse 28, through faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Now, you got to understand, when God gave his word that he would go through the land and all the firstborn would die if the family does not kill the lamb and put the blood on the two side posts and the upper post of the door. This thing has never happened before. This is an unusual request. But by faith, Moses said, we have to do this. And as a result, he believed God's word against all visible evidence, circumstance, and history that he's ever experienced in his life before. Verse 29, it says, By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians, as saying to do, were drowned. And I don't know if we stop long enough to give enough credit to walking through the Red Sea with a massive wall of water on this side, and a massive wall of water on that side. And, and, and the sea floor is not all mucky and muddy, it's dry ground. And they walked through that thing, and you just got to know when they were in the middle, and Pharaoh's chasing them there, you know. But they did it by faith, because God said, 
you go. I got you. And boy, did he ever. That was verse 29 of Hebrews 11. You know what verse 30 of Hebrews 11 is? It's Joshua in the battle of Jericho. That's in the promised land. You know what's missing? All the wilderness. Every bit of it. Now, isn't that interesting? The wilderness story is put in there so that we could learn faith. There actually was no record that they nailed it. There's no record that they nailed it. Now, Moses did. Moses responded in faith, and he was proven before they ever entered the wilderness, which is why Moses was selected to be the leader, right? But afterwards, in Numbers, it's not about Moses' faith anymore. It's about Israel's faith. And Israel represents us. It's Israel's turn to see if they will learn to walk with God. So let's transition now into how that applies to us personally. And point number two in the bulk of our study today, I'm calling refining faith. And this is going to be kind of a survey of what we've learned in this study. We've learned a lot in the last several months if you've been with us. And the question you need to ask yourself is, well, what does that mean to me? Well, when we summarize what we've learned, I, I think that what we can see is, and what you have in front of you today, is what you can consider to be a spiritual maturity checklist. This is a checklist that you can go through. You can use this list to measure how you think you're doing in your walk with the Lord, in your spiritual development of faith. So I thought it would be good to do it like a top 10. So we'll just do it like a top 10. Top 10 lessons to learn in order to grow up spiritually. We'll start with number 10. All right? Number 10, relationship. And this is depicted by the study that we did back in Numbers chapter 4 with the Levites. And, and really the idea is the priesthood of the believer. And I understand that our relationship with God begins at the moment that we truly receive him as Lord and Savior, but that doesn't mean that you really understand it that well, and it certainly doesn't mean that you actually take advantage of it. As New Testament Christians, we see very clearly, for example, in places like Revelation chapter 1 and verses 4 through 6, John writes to the seven churches. Well, you have context right there. He's writing to the church. To the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before the throne, his throne, and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, notice, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There is this doctrine that Baptists have held historically. One of the things that's caused Baptists to stand apart from a lot of other groups of believers, and it's called the priesthood of the believer. Uh, it's, it's also reiterated in 1 Peter 2 and verse number 9, where Peter says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. And a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. As a New Testament priest, what exactly does that mean? Well, do you realize that you can go directly to the Lord 
and speak to him. Do you recognize that you can hear directly from him? Do you recognize the importance that the veil has been torn and you can enter into the holy of holies? In fact, you are already seated in heavenly places right now in Christ. Do you have problems in your life? Do you have concerns? Do you have things that are bothering you? Well, let me just tell you something. You have no need for any other man to stand up as a priest for you. You can take your concerns directly to God. You can listen to exactly what he has to say to you. And the path to your spiritual maturity. Well, it starts here. That's where it starts. Second thing, number nine, the lesson of separation. The lesson of separation. This is the story of the Nazarite vow. We looked at it back in Numbers chapter 6, and you can go back and remind yourself of that if you want to, but the Nazarite vow was set up that that person would separate themselves from some things, for example, from wine and from anything that actually came from grapes, and he was never to cut his hair and, and all these different things. And at the end of the day, it's just about separation. And you know what we need to do if we're going to learn to trust the Lord, if we're going to learn to grow up to spiritual maturity? Well, we need to understand that we need to separate ourselves from some things. What things? Well, depending on who you ask and where you go to church, they'll give you a different list, won't they? Let me make it real easy for you. You separate yourself from anything that would separate you from God. Whatever it is that would separate you from God is that's what you should separate yourself from, right? And there's just so many places we can see this in the New Testament, but very clearly, for example, is 2 Corinthians 6, 17. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Now, this is not the day to study in detail all of these things. Actually, these things are review of what we have covered in the last several months. But the unclean thing can represent sinful practices. In 2 Corinthians 6, it can represent sinful people because their influence will come on to you and, well, destroy your opportunity to walk holy before the Lord as well. But can I make one statement to you that will help you? If you've not thought about this for a while, you need to, you need to get this. Because this idea of separation is often misunderstood. It's misunderstood in the mindset that, okay, I get it, I'm at church, they're just going to tell me what I can't do and what I'm supposed to run away from. That's actually not how it works. Because separation will never work if all you ever do is separate yourself from things and not unto things. You see, this is not legalistically hiding yourself from sinful stuff creating for you and your family some sort of Christian bubble. You know what that does? That leads to false judgment of one another. And you violate the principle of 2 Corinthians 10, 12, where it says we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. They're not wise. And so if you find yourself finding solace in the fact, yeah, you know, I do this, but I tell you what, I don't do that. That guy does that. 
But that guy that does that says, oh, yeah, well, I might do this, but I'll tell you what I don't do. I know a guy over here, and he does this other thing. And boy, I'm going to tell you, I don't do that. And they start comparing themselves among themselves and feeling better about themselves when the standard has never been one another. Listen, if I'm your standard, that's an easy standard. If you're my standard, I'm, I'm on vacation now. <laughs> no offense. But I mean, we're just not all that hot. Verse 17 and 18, 2 Corinthians 10, But he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. You know what God wants you to understand in this step of spiritual maturity, this lesson that you must learn in your wilderness? That you don't just live your life afraid of sin and afraid of lost people and scared of these things and hide yourself and make sure that everything you do is in a Christian bubble because, by the way, there's all kind of wickedness inside those bubbles, by the way hypocrisy and lying and all these things. But you separate yourself unto the things that are holy. And then the other things don't even matter anymore. That's the only way you get victory in your life. So Paul says in Romans 1.1 that he's a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Because you see, if you don't separate yourself unto the things that are holy, unto God and unto his gospel. And you're just trying to make sure that you don't do the things on the don't do list. You're going to fail every time. You're going to fail every time. And you know what else? You're never going to leave the wilderness. You're never going to leave the wilderness because you need to learn this lesson. All right. The eighth biggest thing is the lesson of holiness. These are going to be somewhat associated, I understand. But this is as depicted by your victory over the flesh. And even just last week, we, although there's many examples in the book of Numbers, we referenced the story of the children of Israel that were given unto fornication in this area called Peor. Can I just say that the flesh is a powerful force for evil? present in each and every one of us and for the record just about the time that you think you got it whipped you better take heed if you think you stand lest you fall and just about the time that maybe you're newer to church and and you think wow what a what a large room full of holy people I'm all messed up. I don't belong here. Can I just tell you, friend? We're messed up too. The same flesh that plagues you every day plagues me and every single one that's in here. The flesh is powerful. And the flesh is with you every day of your life until you're not in the flesh anymore. Until you go to see the Lord. But God does want you to learn these things. This is a critical lesson of your life. So in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse number 3, for this is the will of God. You ever wonder what the will of God is? Well, there's some very simple things that are laid out with phrases like, this is the will of God in the Bible. (laughs) And here's one of them. Even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. Now, It's church. 
You would expect that we would say that, of course. And we don't want to disappoint, so, you know, if in your secret life that nobody else knows about, this is a problem for you, let me just give you good biblical counsel. Stop it. Just stop it. That's the will of God for you. You want spiritual counsel? I'm going to give you God's will. God's will is abstain. That's what it is. Married, unmarried, it doesn't matter. Don't do it. God wants you to learn that lesson. Why? Because you need to learn. It says that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel, his body, in sanctification and honor. Not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles who know not God. That's what lost people do. That no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter. Or let me just go ahead and throw in there, or his sister. Because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us to uncleanness, but unto holiness. We need to learn the lesson of holiness in the wilderness. We need to learn to abstain from these fleshly lusts and desires. And obviously, sexual sin is a huge problem. In fact, the study of the scriptures shows us that sexual sin, it goes far deeper than just the body. It actually defiles your soul. That's what it does. And so, in a day and time that we live in today, we're bombarded with evil influences in the media, with movies and streaming and Super Bowl halftime and <laughs> pornography. And well, the temptation will never leave us, never, until we leave this flesh. But if you can't get victory over your flesh, friends... You're going to die in the wilderness. I'm not saying you're not saved. Absolutely not. You're just going to die in the wilderness. Because that's a lesson you need to learn of trusting God and learning for your life. Let's go to number seven, the lesson of fellowship. Well, this is the story of Israel learning to walk with God. God gave them this pillar of fire by night and a pillar of the cloud by the day. And when the cloud would move, then they were to move. And when the cloud would camp in a place, then they were to camp in that place. And they were not to move unless the Lord moved. And they were not to stay when the Lord started to move. And so this is the idea of walking with God. Only move when God moves and don't get out ahead of God. And don't lag behind him when he is asking you to get up and move. Now, this is a little harder than it might just sound. We don't have the advantage of a massive pillar of a visual cloud or a fire, and it's like, oh, it's over there. I better get going. We have to learn to walk with the Lord by faith. It's a faith lesson. And it's critically important because obviously it flows from the previous one because holiness leads to fellowship. Every single time. How can two walk together except they be agreed? Amen? So in 1 John chapter number 1, starting in verse 5, it says, This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light. That's holiness. 
1 John gives us the message of the two aspects of God, his light and his love. He's perfect holiness, but he's also grace and mercy and love. He's all of those things. But because you enjoy the grace and the mercy and love, don't forget that he's light. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, not even a little. So, if we, notice the words, if we say, we're, we're, now, now people, now we are saying something. We're talking now, see? If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we're lying. That means what you're saying is not true. I say I have fellowship with the Lord, but secretly I still have this sin problem. Um, liar, liar, pants on fire. Well, the idea is this, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. How can two walk together except they be agreed? If God is in the light and you are in the darkness, you can say whatever you want all day long. It's not true. And you have to learn the lesson of holiness so you can learn the lesson of fellowship. But, it goes on in verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. I like the way it's written in John, or excuse me, in Galatians 5.16. This I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Go back to that whole idea of being separated. You're never going to get victory over your flesh simply by being separated from. The lust of the flesh will always be fulfilled eventually in your life unless you learn to walk in the Spirit. When you learn to walk in the Spirit, day by day walk in the Spirit, well, then the, the flesh doesn't have its power over you anymore. You're focused on other things. If you're focused on the thing that plagues you, it will plague you. Even if you're focused to get away from it. So that's why when, when we... Take all of the time and the resource, human, financial resource and energy and love and outreach to help people, for example, who are struggling with recovering from substance abuse or different addictions or difficulties that they have in their life. The answer to their life's problems, and they are real problems, is never just try harder to not go back to that life. It never works. It's walk in the spirit. That will give you the victory. Walk with the Lord, and those things just fade away. They're not of interest to you anymore. So when I was newly saved and a college student back in Arkansas about 100 years ago, I, I put on my mirror in my little dorm room a 3x5 card with Galatians 5.16 written on it just to remind myself when I got up and walked out of my room and had to walk to class that I would walk in the spirit. And that was kind of a dumb reminder, but it helped me. I was a brand new Christian. I'm like, okay, I gotta walk to class. Okay, walk in the spirit. I don't know what that meant, but I tried it. I just did whatever I could to try and remind myself to think on the things of the Lord and allow him and his influence to lead my steps every single step of the way. Listen, this is such an important subject for you to learn. We have developed for you an entire class in ministry tools and training for it. 
So go through our system of discipleship. Sign up for ministry tools and training. And take this class among other classes where we'll study Romans chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8 and learn and understand how to walk in the Spirit. But let me give you a really good hint. This will just help you this morning and we'll move on to the next point. Because I do understand that it's hard to always know exactly where the Lord is moving. We don't have the big physical, visible pillar moving around town. So how can I exactly know? Is the Lord doing this? Is the Lord not doing this? Am I ahead of him? Am I behind him? And sometimes it can be confusing. I get it. So I think hidden in numbers is a great hint for you. Just stick close with the congregation. Because the whole camp of Israel is together. And if one of the Israelites was out gathering sticks or something, and he looked and he saw, man, everybody's packing up and leaving, I better leave too. And all of that is a picture for you. Listen, friends, the importance of the family of God in your life is far greater than you may recognize. If the family is doing something and moving in a direction, you ought to consider moving with them. If you're otherwise not sure, you better be moving with them. And if the family is camping out somewhere, you better not just be running out on your own ahead of them. That'll be a problem. So God gave you that to help you. Isn't that good? Paul says it this way in Philippians 3.17, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as you have us for an ensample. He says, let's, let's pay attention and let's all move together. Let's all do it together. So we're counting down the top ten and we're down to number six. And that's the lesson of contentment. Contentment. And the idea here is victory over covetousness. The opposite of being greedy, covetous, is to be content. And in Numbers chapter 11, we have the story of Israel despising the manna. They were, they're just sick of it. They're like, I want something different. I mean, thanks for the manna and all, but can we get some quail? Can we get some meat? Can we get something else? I mean, you know, the, I'm tired. I, can't, I can't think any ways to cook this thing anymore. You know, the manna cakes and the manna souffle and the manna burgers and the manna roast and the manna, you know, broiled manna and baked manna. And so I just, I'm, yeah, give me something new. I'm sick of this. They were discontent. They were discontent with what God provided for them. And that's a problem. Because in Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 5, it says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. And it begins to list some of them. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, notice, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Really? Covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, there's no, you know, no big surprise to the student of the Bible that Israel was idolatrous at times. Remember that Exodus 32 golden calf thing, right? And the whole idea that Aaron, while Moses was up on the mountain, they come down and, you know, they all threw in their golden earrings and all this stuff and boiled them down. And, you know, Exodus 32 says specifically that, that Aaron, they, they carved that thing out of the molten gold that it came out. And they carved and fashioned that calf. But when Moses came down, he's like... What are you thinking? Aaron was like, I don't know. We just put it in there and it popped out. That's what he said. Go back and read. It's amazing. But when the golden calf came out, they were like, 
This is the God that has delivered us from Egypt. I mean, it's just mind-blowing. How is that even possible? Okay, without diving too far into that, just think about it. At the end of the day, you know what it is? It's just, it's just humanism. I did it. I'm taking the credit for this one. I fashioned the God, and I'm going to give him the credit, which really means I'm giving me the credit. And the trap that you fall into on the road to just covetousness, and you can decide which comes first, they're tied together, is when you start taking credit for the things that happen in your life, then you start thinking, well, you know, I probably could use this, and I probably could use that, and, and now you're not satisfied anymore. What God has done is never enough anymore, and that's a real problem. Because anytime you covet anything, you have to have something. It creates a barrier in your spiritual growth. So God warns us in Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he said, hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. In other words, what are you worried about not having for? You got me. I'm with you. I'm not going anywhere. Why is that not enough for you? And then it goes on, and it's even more than that. And it says, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. The Lord says, just trust me with what I have provided for you, one, because I'm enough, and two, so that it can be a witness and a testimony to the rest of the world to see that you could say, the Lord has helped me. I don't need to hunt after that stuff myself. Why? Listen, y'all, these are simple lessons, but we get stuck in these things. And we don't make it out of the wilderness. 1 Timothy 6, 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment. And the latest iPhone. Let us be there with content. Does it say that? Food and raiment. Food, shelter, clothing. Come on. But if that's not you, if you can't be content with that, well, that's verse 9. They that will be rich, is that your will? Is that your desire to be rich? Well, you know what they do? They fall. They fall. And you know what they did in Numbers? They fell in the wilderness. That's what they did. They fall into temptation and a snare into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. You have to have stuff, you're going to fall in the wilderness. That's what's going to happen to you. If greed consumes you, if you think I can't live without it, you're no longer content with what God's given you. And that's a sign of immaturity. That's a lack of faith. We're down to number five, the lesson of authority. Well, authority is the theme of the whole Bible. Who's in charge? Is God in charge or are you? Who's in charge? God's perfect standard of truth preserved in the very presence of God as the tables of stone and the pot of manna are placed in the ark in number 17 to be preserved forever. And we cannot possibly overstate the importance of this lesson in your path of spiritual growth, can we? I mean, without the right attitude towards God's word, 
you're never going to actually walk by faith. Because faith in what otherwise, right? So the psalmist says in Psalm 119, 140, Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. And similar to the lesson on contentment, where they despise the manna, I'm tired of this. We need to be content with the word that God has given us. And stop trying to add to it or improve it or change it. So God specifically reminds us in Proverbs 35 and 6 that every word of God is pure. He's a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee and thou be found a liar. How about rather we just receive it? How about rather we just believe it? How about rather we just give thanks for it? How about rather we do that? Listen, just ask yourself this simple question. Do you really believe, really and truly in your heart? I don't care what you might tell other people to look good. Do you really and truly believe that the word of God that you hold in your hands is God's final and absolute authority for everything in your life? Because if you do, man, you're on your way towards Jordan and that promised land. But if you don't, if you just can't, well, you're still wandering around for a while. And listen, God's holy word, it's not just perfect, and it's not just authoritative. It is all of that, but it's, it's also sufficient for everything we need in life, which means that we don't need some mixture of the full authority of God's word and extra biblical sources and human philosophy, and we don't need to also trust more in our feelings and experiences when we're reading God's word. We just trust in God's word as it's stated and leave it as the authority. We saw this last week, Colossians 2.8. Beware, the Lord says, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. There is no shortage of opinion out there in Christian bookstores. Anywhere you go that just adds to, takes away from, changes, wrestles the word of God some. Just go with God's word. Leave the rest of it behind. Settle that issue of authority in your life. Because if you will, you're making progress. You're on your way. Number four, the lesson of perspective. This is the idea of seeing Jesus Christ in the circumstances of daily life. And so we spent some time studying Numbers 19 and 20 and 21 where there were pictures of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament. We saw the picture of the red heifer, the sacrifice for the purification of sin, and, and we saw the rock that is Christ, even mentioned in 1 Corinthians 10, referencing the two times the rock was smitten, the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ. We, we saw the serpent lifted up on the pole and how that's referenced in John 3 as a picture of Jesus Christ. The idea is making spiritual application from daily, physical, real-life 
events. You know, Jesus is trying to get your attention in life. And similar to Moses back in the desert before this whole thing got started, remember that story of the burning bush. I want to read for you from Exodus 3, starting in verse 1. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. Notice verse 4. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, then God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here am I. You see, the Lord is setting bushes on fire in your life all day long. There's things going on in your world all the time. They're just a little odd. They're a little off. They're a little weird. There's things you don't understand. How could he or she behave this way? Why is this going on at work? Why is this happening in my life? What are these things? These bushes are catching on fire, and they're not just going away. And the Lord just wants to know, are you ever going to stop your busy life for a minute and just consider what what is going on here? Can you see the Lord's hand in the midst of those things? Because maybe if you'll just stop with that perspective, maybe the Lord will show you. Maybe he'll show you what he's doing. Maybe you'll be able to see the Lord working in your circumstances. And that's really what you want, isn't it? That's a sign of spiritual growth and maturity when you can do that. You don't just see the circumstances. You see God working through them. That's a lesson of the wilderness. Number three, discernment, the lesson of discernment. And we talked about this last week in great detail, so we'll do it quickly. Um, numbers 22 to 24 in the story of Balaam, false teachers, false prophets. This deals more with the application of biblical truth once you've received it. It deals with the careful and thorough filtering of information. Because listen, y'all, there's a lot of liars out there. And the truth of the matter is, you can't know that I'm not one of them. I mean, I try not to be. I hope I'm not. But you better check me out like you better check everybody out according to in comparison with the only true standard you have in the universe, the Word of God. Listen, you should be able to spot them. There's the, Christian bookstores are making money because we buy the books. Just because they're sold under the banner of a Christian store doesn't mean they're all right. So as of late, I have seemed to come across this particular example that I want to share with you that is fairly prevalent in the world of famous Christian personalities of today, a guy by the name of Francis Chan, who is a noted Calvinist, an author, a pastor, a speaker, widely followed Christian personality, who recently has come out in support of the Catholic Eucharist and transubstantiation, recently came out in a video, that you can find all this on YouTube, go look it up, that while he was in a village in Myanmar 
he was a missionary for like a year or so, that he walked into a village of completely unbelieving people and every single man, woman, boy, and girl that he touched physically was completely healed of whatever disease they had. So here you have in the personality of one very famous, well-read by evangelicals, Christian personality, Francis Chan, who wrapped up in one package is a Calvinist, a Catholic, and a charismatic. <laughs> and people will read that stuff that he writes now and think, oh, man, that is fantastic. No, listen, y'all, seriously. Learn the lesson of discernment. Learn how to take the meat and throw away the bones, right? You should be able to spot a false gospel. You should be able to spot false doctrine. 2 Timothy 3, 13, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou, of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures. Well, that's how you're going to tell whether people are deceiving and being deceived which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Jesus, Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, you've got to get 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen. for Paul says there must be also heresies among you. Why? Because God's testing your faith. God wants to know if you'll trust him in the wilderness. God wants to know if you'll stand up and notice that these guys are heretics. There must be also heresies among you, God says. Why? That they which are approved may be made manifest. And they which are approved cross over Jordan. Oh, it's not God's will that there be any divisions among people. Oh, it's not God's will that there be different denominations and everybody arguing about stuff. Well, not according to 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen. God says, actually, there has to be a bunch of crazy voices out there so that I can see which ones of you care enough to study. By the way, there's only one verse in the Bible that tells you how to be approved. Study to show yourself approved. You prove that, well, you're going somewhere. Second most important lesson in the wilderness, the lesson of submission. And the lesson of submission is the lesson of submission to delegated authority. Now, we talked about authority. We learned about ultimate authority. That's God and his word. God bless. I mean, that is fantastic. But this is the story of Numbers 16 and the rebellion of Korah and the earth opening up and swallowing Korah and everybody that was with them because they were complaining, why does Moses get to be in charge? This one issue keeps popping up over and over and over again in the wilderness, murmuring and complaining against leadership all their lives, and they died in the wilderness because they're unwilling to believe God and his word where God specifically prescribes delegated leadership, delegated authority. And there are three specific areas where God has delegated authority. He's delegated it in the structure of a physical family. He's delegated it in the structure of a national family, in human government. And he's delegated, of course, in the structure of a spiritual family, the one that interests us the most here, at least. There's a biblical structure. The Word of God defines it. 
And you'll never find joy in your heart and in your life until you learn this lesson if you're always fighting it. So in the spiritual family, 1 Timothy 5, 17, let the elders that rule is the word well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in word and doctrine. In Hebrews 13, 7, remember them which have the rule over you. Who are they? Who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Verse 17 of the same chapter. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls as they that must give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief. Because if that happens, well, that's unprofitable for you. Not because somebody's going to come and beat you down with the authority stick. It's unprofitable for you because you never grow up and you die in the wilderness. You die in the wilderness. This is a huge problem in the book of Numbers. They're constantly complaining. And in case you might happen to be somebody who's thinking in your mind, listen, man, you're crazy. You're just trying to get us to do whatever you say. I've seen guys like you before, and I'm not falling for that. Okay. Go ahead. Good luck with that. You will die in the wilderness, and I'll just see you on the other side. It's okay. I'm not mad. I promise. But you got to check your attitude. You just got to check your attitude. God needs you to learn that lesson. How's that not the most important lesson? Well, because this is the most important lesson. In my opinion, it's the lesson of vision. I think it's the most important, and I think it comes from what I think is the most important chapter in all the book of Numbers. That's chapter 13, when the spies go into the land. And the 12 go in, and only two come out believing God, and 10 of them didn't believe God, and they got the whole congregation to not believe God. And as a result, because they wouldn't believe God, they had physical vision overrided their spiritual vision. It was a key turning point in the life of Israel. They couldn't see, they couldn't believe God and his word that God is bigger than their enemies. You believe God is bigger than your enemies? You believe God is bigger than your problems? You believe God is able to take whatever's going on, whatever confronts you, whatever seems so daunting and unsurpassable, and he can get you through it just because he said he could and he would? It's the ultimate issue of faith. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So spiritual vision is greater than physical vision. It's faith in what God said without needing to have physical evidence to defend it. Moses had this vision we read in Hebrews 11.27 as seeing him who is invisible. This is your checklist. These are the things God needs you to learn in the wilderness of your life and spiritual growth. Relationships, separation, holiness, fellowship, contentment, authority, perspective, discernment, submission, and vision. Learn those things and cross over Jordan. That's all there is to it. That's faith. That's what it is. So 2 Corinthians 4.18, it says, we don't look at the things that are seen physically. We look at the things that are not seen physically because they're eternal. They're spiritual things. You can only see those by faith. That's the only way you can see them. We'll run out of time, and it won't really take long. The third point in our study is looking forward, reckoning forward. 
And this is the book of Joshua. This is heading forward into the promised land. We haven't studied it, but just, just let me tell you this. So you say, man, this is the top 10 items to check out in my life. And, and man, okay, I'm doing good. What's next for me? Well, it's the book of Joshua. The promised land does not represent heaven. The promised land represents the life of victory, the life of conquest, the life of spiritual maturity. Now that you're armed with faith and you've proven it, you're equipped to go into the world and conquer and to complete your mission. And there's three things you can expect when you arrive at spiritual maturity. We actually study this in some detail in ministry tools and training. Number one, you feed yourself. It says in Joshua 5.12 that the day that they entered into the promised land, the manna ceased. God is not raining your food down right outside your tent flap anymore. This land is full of plenty. It's the land that flows with milk and honey. It's the land of grapes and, and almonds and pomegranates. And this is the land that has all the food you could ever enjoy. Go get you some. And when you arrive in spiritual maturity, you know what you should be able to do? You don't need somebody to spoon feed you this anymore. This is all the food you could ever think of needing. Go get you some. That's the mature life. That's the promised land life. The second one, fight your enemies. You go into the promised land, everything's perfect. We never have problems. No, the giants are still there. The giants are waiting for you. And we'll not read it, but Joshua 1, 5 through 8, maybe that'll be thrown up here, but Joshua 1, 5 through 8 is where God promises, look, man, you're going to win. I'm with you. Be strong and of good courage. Don't let the word of God depart out of your mouth. Meditate on it. You're going to have victory in your life. You're going to win these battles. Drive out the enemies. And in your spiritual life of maturity, you've got faith. You've got God's word. You've got everything you need. Now let's go and drive out the enemies. Lastly, fill the earth. Reproduce sons of God everywhere. That's missions. That's winning people to the Lord right here in our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost. These are the works of a life of maturity. And when you see them working in your life, they become the evidence of maturity. Because I see them working in my life. So the question is, where are you at on the checklist? Where has Jesus put his finger? What is the area you need to work on? What is the specific thing that you know you're not trusting God with, but you need to trust God with? Because if he's spoken to you, well, we need to work on that area so that we can make progress, so that we can get out of the wilderness. Amen? Let's pray together. We'll wrap.